morning. We are beginning a new study this morning. And if I were to ask you which author contributed the most to the New Testament, many of you would possibly say the Apostle Paul. And yet the answer is who? Luke. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, but he also wrote the next book in our study, which will be the book of Acts. And together, those two books account for more than 30% of the entire New Testament. So we need to appreciate, I think, more of what the Holy Spirit used Luke for when it came to the New Testament. Uh, Luke wrote more than both Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament letters, and John, who wrote the Gospel of John, as well as Revelation in all of the letters of First and Second and Third John. So as we studied Romans, we got to the end of that book, and I emphasized how Paul's primary purpose in writing the letter to the church at Rome was not to establish the sovereignty of God, even though a lot of us in, let's say, the Reformed tradition, we look at Romans and we say, well, that's our favorite go-to passage, right? Romans 9, that's why Paul did it. He was building this apology in defense for the sovereignty of God. Well, that isn't the main purpose of Romans. Nor is it, as others might say, well, actually, my favorite chapter is Romans chapter 8, where it talks about how nothing can separate me from the love of God. So Romans is the go-to letter for the security of my salvation and the love of God when it comes to uh, what God has done for me. That is not the purpose of the letter, ultimately, of Romans either. What I said was Romans was primarily written to encourage the church at Rome. This church, made up of both Jew and Gentile, struggling at times to get along, to realize Paul wanted them to understand their high calling to live as a unified people who, with one voice, would glorify God and evangelize the world. And that theme is a fitting transition to Acts, which was written to describe how the church actually fulfilled that calling in the first century. And so our passage today is Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. If you would stand as we read together these verses. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. 
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenge of every time we come to your word, there's often a a portion of a passage that has led to discussion and sometimes even disagreement in the broader church. And so we pray for wisdom as we look at these words, these verses. Help us to understand your word and apply it today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, Acts is the second book, as I said, that Luke completed, and like his gospel, it's addressed to a reader named Theophilus, which means friend of God. And as you can imagine, some have thought, well, Theophilus, friend of God, I wonder if that's a generic title for a Christian, and this could be written to all Christian readers, but... The fact that Luke, in his introduction to his gospel, where Theophilus is also mentioned, and is called the most excellent Theophilus, suggests that this was more likely a person, because that's typically what you did in letters uh, or books when you uh, dedicated them to a particular person. You would give them the honorific, most excellent Epaphroditus, most excellent Theophilus. It suggests not only was this more likely a person, but probably a Gentile convert to Christianity. It was a common name, certainly, at the time. And in that same introduction to his gospel, Luke tells Theophilus that his purpose for writing is to write an orderly account that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So there is something about knowing the history of Jesus' ministry And then the history of the church that adds certainty to the things that Jesus taught. We might consider Acts to be part two of Luke's good news. And as Luke says in the first two verses here in our passage, what we will learn about is what happened after Jesus was taken up and had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. And so what that means is what we're going to see in this book is the direct consequence of Jesus dying on the cross and then rising again is that he sent his Holy Spirit to motivate and enable his people to do something. Namely, to proclaim the gospel, to be a witness, to gather believers from throughout the entire world. I know in just saying that, that probably just flows over the brain. You go, okay. But I I want to emphasize that point. The end result, at least on earth, of Christ's living, teaching, dying, rising again, is that the church is not only established. David was saying earlier, sometimes we get stuck, right? We get stunted in thinking, well, it's just about salvation of my soul. Well, it's not just that the church was established. Now we can meet here on Sunday mornings. But that it is active Jesus expects us to advance in triumph. He expects us to conquer the forces of unbelief and to gather together from all four corners of the world the body of Christ. And if that isn't happening, even in our own little corner of the kingdom here in the Central Valley of California, we have to be asking why. Well, today, one of the nicer things said about the church is that it's irrelevant. The book of Acts and Paul's letters tell us exactly the opposite. 
especially in verse 8 of chapter 1 where Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Acts may be the historic record of the first century church, but it is so much more than that. It is also the record of the supernatural growth of the church. Does that make sense? It's not just telling us how the church began to spread in the world. It's really detailing for us the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit that starts in the fullness of Pentecost. The Spirit works through his people, whom Jesus calls witnesses, and that term is used 39 times in this book. Now, why is that relevant? Well, many people, when they think of Christ's ministry, they think only of the Gospels. Somebody asks you, tell me about Jesus. Well, where's the first place you're going to go? It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? And usually we stop there. But Acts makes it clear that Jesus, risen again, is exalted and now reigns as the Lord of history and the Lord of the church. As Calvin once wrote, Acts is the beginning of the reign of Christ. The renewal of the world is being depicted here, he says. And what we see as a result of the expanding church is not just, well, there was a church established in Thessalonica, there's a church established in Ephesus. No, what we see is God redeeming a fallen world back to himself, reversing the curse. If you look again at our passage, you can see how that process begins. Verses 4 through 5 read, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. And that promise aspect that Jesus describes of the Spirit, that's the easier one. Jesus multiple times during his ministry promised the disciples that he would not leave them alone. I will send a helper, he said. And remember that from the later chapters of John. I'll send a comforter. That was not the first time, though, that the Spirit had ever been mentioned. Centuries before, God had promised that he would write his law upon the hearts of his people, giving them hearts of flesh rather than hearts of stone. And it's a reference to the work of the Holy Spirit upon people's hearts. And you don't even need indirect references. There are plenty of direct references, particularly in the prophets like Isaiah and Joel, where God's Spirit is described as being sent upon and set upon the nations. So Jesus spoke of the promised Spirit, and then also in those verses 4 and 5, he speaks of a baptism of the Spirit. What is that? If we look at the next chapter, we see that this baptism occurs at Pentecost. And this is where the Spirit, the Comforter, whom Jesus had promised would come, actually does come. In Acts 2, verses 1 through 4 says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues of fire appeared to them, rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The word tongues here, just for your reference, is the Greek word glossolalia, which means languages. 
So literally what this verse is saying is that the disciples began to speak in other languages than their own. And here, one of the controversies today, large enough to lead to the formation of other denominations, is the question of whether this gift of speaking in other languages or tongues is an inseparable part of being baptized with the Holy Spirit. The question becomes, should every true believer be able to speak in other languages? Well, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. Last week in Romans, we saw the exhortation by Paul to be one body that glorifies God with one voice. So in 1 Corinthians here, he says that this happens through, and you can see it in the passage, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which creates a family of believers who are all joint heirs with Christ. There is no slave or free, Paul says, no Jew or Gentile, only the redeemed. And you notice the language. We were all baptized into one body. And then speaking of Romans, in chapter 6, Paul writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin. I know there are a lot of words there, but what Paul is saying is that whenever we were, whatever we were before the work of the Holy Spirit, we are changed into something new. We are raised from a deadness to sin. We are raised to a newness of life and conform more and more to be like Christ. And Paul uses the terminology of being baptized into Christ Jesus and his death. He also writes in Colossians 2, In him you also were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So we see the same theme over several different letters of Paul. And if we put it all together by being baptized into Christ, and Paul does not mean baptism with water in these passages, by being baptized into Christ, we are no longer identified by whether we are Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free, but instead we are identified by the righteousness of Christ. 
we die to our old selves and those old natures are buried with Christ and are made new through the power of the Holy Spirit. So when the Bible speaks of spiritual baptism, whether it's described as being into Christ's death or by the Holy Spirit, it points to a sharing in the experience and the results of Christ's work. It is the result of having died to sin and having been raised to new life. We both die in Christ and are raised to new life by the Spirit. So friends, what I'm saying is this. Being baptized by the Spirit means being born again. It means being made a new creature in the likeness of Christ, being redeemed from the judgment and the wrath of God. And just as Paul indicated in the 1 Corinthians passage, all true believers are baptized into Christ's death and by the Holy Spirit. But we still need to answer the question of whether the ability to speak in other languages or in tongues is an expected and inseparable part of this baptism. But given what we've been reading, we're on the verge of the answer. If we look at chapter 8 of Acts, we read, but when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women, and this is this first reference to baptism is water. Even Simon himself believed, and, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had laid, had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And that last part, the receiving of the Holy Spirit, is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So what is, what is happening here? Well, consider for a moment that scene of Acts 1 and 2 that we went over. Were those disciples believers? We would say that they were. And yet none of them had yet received the Holy Spirit. And that leads some to separate saving faith from the baptism of the Holy Spirit, despite the fact that we read in 1 Corinthians and Colossians and Romans the description of baptism with the Spirit as being part of that salvific process. So what... What is happening? Why is saving faith and baptism separated in Acts chapters 2 and chapter 8? We're on the precipice of something that's important to understand about this book. They are separate in chapter 2 because Jesus had told them in John 14 and John 16 that after he went away, only then would the helper come? In other words, there was a definite start to the coming of the Holy Spirit and his specific ministry in the lives of believers. Similarly, we are told in Acts chapter 8 that the people of Samaria became believers too. Why were they not automatically baptized with the Holy Spirit? Verse 14, there is the key. 
Now, when the apostles, it says, at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, and I want you to notice that the verse does not say, when the apostles heard that Tom, Sally, and Joe had received the word of God. It says, when they heard that Samaria, the region, and I'm reminded of Jesus' promise in verse 8 of our passage, of our morning's passage that we read earlier, you will remember that we read Jesus say, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Luke is relating the expansion of the church as the fulfillment of Jesus' promise. And the first chapters describe the expansion in Jerusalem. And soon the church expands into Judea, and then to Samaria, and finally the gospel is triumphantly proclaimed at the ends of the earth. In chapter 8, Mark's the great and significant move of the gospel from Judea to Samaria. From the Jews to the Jews that were considered half-Jews, right? By the, the, the pure Jews in Jerusalem. Samaritans, you may remember, were often despised. It all goes back a long time before history of intermarriage with the Gentiles and relocation by Assyria when the northern kingdom was conquered. That's another story for another time. But, but we know by the time of Jesus that the Samaritans were often despised. But here the gospel, here Christianity, here the kingdom, here the church spreads into Samaria. In chapter 8 and a few other passages like it in Acts, like chapter 10, these are all many Pentecosts. So what you have to understand, these are many Pentecosts where God dramatically demonstrates to his people the momentous spread of his Holy Spirit to the next concentric circle outward. No wonder the apostles were excited when they heard Samaria has believed. The next, it's exactly like Jesus said. Did you hear that? Samaria has believed. And they all ran to go see what had happened. And as we read in verse 25 of that same chapter, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel on the way to many villages of the Samaritans. The same thing happens when the gospel spreads to the ends of the earth, to the Gentiles. And you really need to understand that is the definition of the ends of the earth, not to what is the farthest reach, you know, when it's finally proclaimed off the mountain at the edge of the world, Jesus is risen. No, it's not what that's mean. End of the earth means to the Gentile nations. And in verse 1 of chapter 10, we read at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household. 
gave alms generously to the people, prayed continually to God. It was not uncommon for those who had been stationed to guard these provinces that Rome owned, such as Israel, Palestine. It was not uncommon for some of the officers to be influenced and even to become converts to Judaism and later to Christianity as they heard the truth. And here is Cornelius, about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa. Bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Now, was Peter excited when he heard the news about Cornelius, a Gentile becoming a believer in Christ? We'll see. The apostles may have been amazed and excited at the spread of the gospel to Samaria, but at least the Samaritans were arguably part Jewish. Many objected in principle to the spread of the good news to the Gentile nations. Well, we learn in the next few verses that the next day as they were on their journey approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. He became hungry, wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing, he fell into a trance, saw the heavens open, and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals, reptiles, birds of the air, and there came a voice to him that said, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord. Now, it's not just that Peter is digging in his heels and saying no. Probably he thinks this is a test. By no means, Lord. In other words, I'm being faithful, I'm being obedient. I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again and said a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. And this happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. And you can picture what's happening there. Peter's entire life set within the framework of the Old Testament regulations to abstain from unclean foods. God wants him to eat something unclean. Has something changed? What is happening? We know this was fundamentally hard for Peter. Later he's going to be rebuked by Paul, right? For having separated from the Gentiles at a time when they were eating in Antioch. So we know that this is an issue for Peter, certainly stronger at this point in time. So what we learn next is that while Peter is struggling about what might happen, it says that he was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean. At that moment, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. This, would, this could be in itself the subject of a sermon for another time, just 
the providential working of God that you, you realize how long it took for Cornelius' men to get to Joppa, and God times it perfectly so that they arrive at the time that Peter has that vision three times and then is confused and struggling in his mind, and lo and behold, outside of his gate are these men. We could talk about that some other time. But this is what happens. And the Spirit says to Peter, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have, I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. And then we get to the really exciting part in verse 34. Peter can't believe what's happening. Despite the fact that Jesus has specifically told him that all the gospel will go where? To Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth, to the Gentiles. He is still amazed, and we see his words. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. He knew it had been said 50 times in the Old Testament. But hearing it said and seeing it done, two different things. I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him. Come on, Peter. Our family was just reading last night about Rahab. Did you forget about Rahab? Did you forget about Ruth? Forget about the people that came into, you know, from other nations. But I understand now, God shows no partiality in every nation. Anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, Beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, he went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So Peter's telling them about the gospel. And you can see how it connects with what I've been talking about, these concentric circles. And then we hear Peter's conclusion. We are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us, who have been chosen by God as witnesses and who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. You see how Peter is fulfilling what God told him, what Jesus told them that they would do as a witness back in chapter 1? He commanded us to preach to the people to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. And to him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And while Peter was saying these things, while Peter is being a witness through the power of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter are there with their jaws on the floor, right? 
it says they were amazed. Understatement. Why? Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. You need to read that with a stress. Even on the Gentiles of all people. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. As if to substantiate what God, Peter had been describing, the spread of the church to the very ends of the earth and how the Holy Spirit had been given even to them, God times the pouring out and the baptizing of these individuals at that moment. Right then. Not earlier, not later. And again, I don't want us to get confused by that last part that they were speaking in tongues and extolling God. We read that in chapter Two and also, and while speaking in tongues is described as a gift of the Spirit, Paul very clearly says in 1 Corinthians 12 that not all believers of his time possessed that gift. And remember how in that same letter to the Corinthians he said that all are baptized with the Spirit into one body. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the speaking in tongues are separable. Being baptized with the Spirit, which every true believer experienced, does not automatically mean being given the gift of tongues. But this gift of tongues and this ability to speak in other languages is a gift. It was an evidence of what God had just done. That 1 Corinthians 12 passage that I mentioned in passing, Paul asks the question, you may be familiar with it, are all apostles? These are rhetorical questions. The answer is no, not all are apostles. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all possess gifts of healing? No. Do all speak in tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. Not everyone is given all of the gifts. So speaking in tongues cannot be the sign of salvation in the baptism of the Holy Spirit because not every saved believer has that gift. I hope that makes sense. For Cornelius and his household, the gifts of, gift of speaking in other languages was a very visible and undeniable evidence that the Gentiles had been baptized by the Holy Spirit. And as verse 47 says, then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water now for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just like us? The very same thing that we did, which probably to them in their minds was this amazing experience because we're apostles, we're disciples. We're pure Jews. The very same amazing evidence of the Holy Spirit, this speaking in other languages was expressed by the Gentiles. And he says, they've received the Holy Spirit just like us. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Because what have we got here? A third Pentecost. One in Jerusalem today amongst the Jews. One in Samaria amongst the Samaritans, one amongst Cornelius' household, amongst the ends of the earth. 
And so the answer as to why there was an initial delay of the baptism of the Holy Spirit with regard to those who were proclaiming faith when baptism by the Holy Spirit normally it's just that part of that process being baptized into Christ's death, raised to new life, is because the delay overcame the Jews' natural prejudice against the Gentiles and the Samaritans. The apostles saw with their own eyes the same evidence that had taken place for them. And when you listen to Peter's retelling of the events to his fellow believers in Acts 11, he says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just like us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord. You see how this very visible, tangible evidence recalls to his mind the promise of Jesus, the words that he had spoken and what were said. I remembered the words of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift as he gave to us when we believed, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God and said, then the, to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. They had no further objections. How could they? When Jesus, during his gospel ministry, had said similar things, that was one of the most insulting, offensive things that could be imagined. That God's mercy and grace would be equally bestowed on the Gentile nations as to Israel. There was a significant generation-bred resentment that needed to be overcome and it was. God had proven beyond a doubt that what he had promised in John chapter 14 and Acts chapter 1 came true. So here's the point. If the usual separation of time between the baptism of the Spirit and saving belief is due in chapters 2, 8, and 10 to this purposeful delay in this very specific set of circumstances to prove the expansion to the next concentric circle. If that was meant to overcome a deep-seated prejudice and expectation by the disciples and other Jews regarding the difference of the Gentiles, we would expect that those three delays would be the only examples. And that is exactly what we find. There are no other examples in the book of Acts or in any other New Testament book of a waiting time between saving belief and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. To use the terminology of Scripture, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the circumcision of the heart. It is the powerful rebirthing of a person dead in sin by applying Christ's atonement and then indwelling of that individual with the Holy Spirit. And as we have seen in Acts, it is accompanied by spiritual gifts and fruit. The Spirit gives many gifts, and not all of them to the same person. I believe the temptation to separate the baptism of the Spirit 
from saving belief arises from two areas. The first we've already dealt with. And part of that also is, is just the whole issue like we've talked about of speaking in tongues as a gift that was in evidence during those many Pentecosts. Hopefully we've laid that thought to rest. I'll always talk about it more later. But second, many believers confuse the phrase filled with the Holy Spirit with baptism of the Holy Spirit. And while baptism of the Spirit is certainly an example of filling, baptism of the Spirit only happens once. From that point forward, the believer is adopted as a child of God. The phrase filled with the Spirit, that's a little more generic. It refers to a time in which we are wholly and completely submitted to and directed by God's Spirit. And you've all experienced that at times, I'm sure. And you also know what it's like to feel low times, too, to feel dry up inside. As David once wrote, after being caught in sin, because of your wrath, there's no health in my body. My bones have no soundness because of my sin. My guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden that is too heavy to bear. That's the opposite. We've experienced those times. But we also know the times like that described in Acts 4, verse 31, where the apostles, and this is after they received the baptism of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, back in chapter 2, right? This is chapter 4. At this moment, this later moment, they are all filled with the Holy Spirit and speak the word of God boldly. Being filled with the Spirit makes us bold witnesses. It also makes us wise and godly examples, just like the men of Acts chapter 6, the ones who are considered the proto-deacons, whom the Bible describes as being full of the Holy Spirit. Being filled with the Holy Spirit can help us discern good from evil and right from wrong. We know that from Scripture that it is the Spirit who helps us understand the things of God. We're told in Acts 13 that it, the being filled with the Spirit enabled Paul to see the real motives behind a man named Elymas' actions. And the bottom line is this. If someone asks whether or not you have been baptized with the Holy Spirit, First, clarify what they mean by their question. Do they mean to ask if you are a believer? Or do they mean to ask whether or not you are filled with the Holy Spirit? If it's the former, then yes. If you are a believer, you have been baptized with the Holy Spirit. As we read in Romans 8 9, you, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. So if you have not received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, if he does not indwell you, you are not a half Christian. You are not a Christian. You do not belong to Christ. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. For the baptism of the Holy Spirit is nothing less than salvation itself. I do look forward to our study of Acts and Paul's epistles. There are some amazing things that we're going to find that the church faced as it spread and grew. And we're going to find very applicable practical lessons for us today. 
We may be a small fellowship here in Central California, but friends, we have been filled, baptized with the Holy Spirit. And I pray that we will be filled, ever filled with the Holy Spirit to be bold witnesses here in the valley. That is, after all, exactly what Jesus intends for his church. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for these early verses and how they tie into chapters 2 and 8 and 10. Lord, you enabled your people, you empowered your people to become witnesses. But the church was going to naturally face some obstacles, particularly this bias against the Samaritans and the Gentiles. Even as we sometimes have our own biases against people that are different from us, But Father, you overcame those biases in a very powerful and significant way, tangible, visible way, by having these small Pentecosts occur in in Samaria and in Cornelius' household. Lord, help us to understand how you oversaw that whole process Help us to have the confidence that even in our own small church, you can fill us with your spirit. You can give us the boldness of being witnesses. You can overcome whatever boundaries there exist between us as a people and the people of this valley. Use us, we pray. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.